In the opening verses of chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, Paul speaks of the Gentile standing before Jesus came. Paul, a Jew himself, was known as the apostle to the Gentiles, but he never forgot the special and unique, unique place that the Jews had in God's plan and purpose. Yet here we read of the incredible divide between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews' hatred of the Gentiles is far stronger than we could ever imagine. Barclay writes that the Jews claimed that the Gentiles were created by God to be the fuel of the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations he has made. If that was not bad enough, the Jews even said that it was not lawful to help a Gentile mother in her hour of need, for that would allow another Gentile into the world. So until Jesus came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Gentile girl married a Jewish boy or vice versa, the funeral of that person was carried out. You might recall Peter's dilemma upon his dream and entering Cornelius' house, which would have made him unclean. So before Jesus came, the barriers were up. And after Jesus, the barriers were down. Before Jesus, there was no hope of unity. In Christ, the new unity had come. You see, the Gentiles had no hope of a Messiah. In fact, the AV has it that they were without Christ, without the anointed one of God. Whereas the Jews never doubted that the Messiah would come. They had a sense of expectancy despite their hardships. They knew they had a destiny. But as for the Gentiles, their history was going nowhere. To the Gentile, history was a journey to nowhere. But to the Jew, history was a march to God. To the Gentile, life was literally not worth living. For a Jew, life was a greater life. And with the coming of Christ the Gentile entered a new view of history where one was always on the way to God. The tragedy here is that Israel forgot her vocation and twisted her privilege into favoritism. Sadly, you still see this viewpoint with Hasidic Jews in their black coats and hats. Also, the Gentiles were strangers to covenants on which the promises were made. The Jewish idea of a covenant was this. They believed that God had approached their nation with a special offer. Exodus 6 verse 7 says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be to you your God. This relationship involved not only privilege, but obligation as the covenant relationship involved keeping the law. A little later in Exodus 24, verses 3 and 7, we hear their response. Everything the Lord has said we will do, everything the Lord has said we will obey. 
If God's plan had to be worked out, it must be through a nation. But God's choice of Israel was not out of favoritism or choice of special honor, but rather a choice of special responsibility. Sadly, the Jews elevated themselves rather than God. Look at me at verse 13. For the words far away and near have a deeper meaning than just words written. Paul had used these here to say to the Jews that hatred is now dead and gone and a new unity established. In Isaiah 57 verse 19, Isaiah is recorded as hearing God say, Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him that is near. You see, when rabbis spoke of someone becoming a convert into Judaism, they said the person had been brought near. Rabbi Eliezer was approached by a woman who admitted that she was a sinner and asked to be admitted to the Jewish faith. Rabbi, she said, bring me near, bring me near. But the rabbi refused. But now the door was open and those who were far from God were brought near and the door was shut to no one. In verse 14, he uses an even more vivid picture where the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, had been torn down. This was the image of the temple. Now the temple consisted of several courts, each a little higher than the other. First there was the court of the Gentiles, then the court of the women, then the courts of the priests, and finally the holy place itself. So the Gentiles could only enter the first court and would bring death upon themselves if they went further. In fact, plaques have been found with the inscription saying so. If you know your Bibles well in Acts 21, verse 28 and 29, you will know of Paul's wrongful arrest of Trophimus, an Ephesian Gentile, into the temple, an arrest which led to his final imprisonment and death. Such division was not just by the Jews. Some 400 years earlier, the Greeks were at it saying that you were either Greek, someone who spoke Greek, or a barbarian. One must question how things changed all these years later. Can you see divisions amongst nations, class, or color? And sadly, church against church, I came across a quote from Father Taylor of Boston, who used to say, there is just enough room in the world for all the people in it, but there, are no, there is no room for the fences which separate them. Barclay said, modern progress has been made, sorry, modern progress has made the world a neighborhood. God has, God has given us the task of making it a brotherhood. So Paul goes on to say that in Christ, these barriers are down and that they are destroyed. But how? Paul says of Jesus, he is our peace. 
Think about this analogy. If two people quarrel to the point of it going to court, it is likely the difference will continue and any healing be limited on one side. But suppose someone knows them both and that they are respected by both and they are brought together, there is every chance that peace will be the result. That reminded me of an old joke. What's the difference between a terrorist and a piano keyboard player? You can negotiate with a terrorist. It's an old one, I'm sorry. That is what Jesus does. He is our peace. And through our common love for him, that people will come to love each other, one another. It was at the cross where that peace was won. The cost was his blood, where upon the cross he draws all to him. John 12, verse 32. True peace is not found in treaties or discussions, but only in Jesus Christ. Next, Paul says that Jesus has wiped out the law of the commandments with all its decrees. But what does that mean? You see, the Jews believed that only by keeping the Jewish law was a man good, and that by this he could attain the fellowship of God. From simple rules, there are now thousands. And the only ones who fully kept the Jewish law were the Pharisees. But as Paul says, Christ is the end of the law, Romans 10.4. But what did he put in its place? He put love to God and love to all. I heard a story of soldiers in France who brought the dead body of a colleague to a cemetery to have their friend buried there. The priest told them gently it was a Roman Catholic cemetery and he asked if the friend had been baptised as a Roman Catholic. They said they did not know, to which the priest said that he was sorry but he could not permit the burial in his church graveyard. So the soldiers reluctantly took their friend and buried him just outside the fence. The next day they returned to check the grave to discover that they could not find it. They knew it was six feet away from the fence, but they could not find any evidence of a freshly dug soil. As they were about to leave, the priest came and explained to them that his heart had been troubled by his refusal and he had woken early in the morning and moved the fence to include the body of the soldier who had died for France. That is what love can do. Rules and regulations put up the fence, but love had moved it. Jesus has removed the fences between humanity because he abolished all religion that is founded on rules and regulations, bringing us to a religion whose foundation is love. From verses 13 to 18, Paul now tells us about the priceless gifts which Jesus brought to humankind as a result of this new unity in Christ. 
First, he made both Jew and Gentile into one new person. In fact, a new type of person which did not exist before. I'm not saying that Jesus made a Jew a Gentile and a Gentile a Jew. No, he produces a new kind of person out of both, where they remain either Jew or Gentile. What I'm saying here is that Jesus makes the difference which makes them Christians. And Christians from different nations act differently and respond differently, but all possess love for each other. Jesus removed the fences between all humankind because he abolished all religion founded on rules and regulations and brought in its place. Yes, I said again, a religion that is founded on love. Many a mistake has been made when Christians send missionaries to other countries, expecting converts to dress in suits with a tie, with a Bible under their arm, who have church at 10.30 on a Sunday, and use certain liturgy and song. It might at one point have worked here, but not now. So why should we expect it to work elsewhere where cultures differ? However, unity should lie in our Christianity. The oneness in Christ is in Christ and nothing else. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he recalled all to God, both Jew, Gentile, Greek and barbarian. He has brought together all those who were estranged. Jesus has shown us that God is their friend and because God is their friend, they must be friends with each other. God has brought a reconciliation of which we need to reconcile with others. It is through this reconciliation that we can have access to God. You see, it's because of this unity in Christ that Christianity transcends all local and racial differences. If we are friends with God, then we can be friends with each other. I don't know about you, but when I have met Christians when traveling in this country or abroad, I feel an instant unity, an overwhelming oneness. It is not fake or false, but a real oneness in spirit. And as an only child, I have actually felt like I have siblings. In the last section of this passage, Paul uses two illuminating pictures. He says that the Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and members of God's household. I heard of a man who got a job in a faraway town. He took lodgings in a small room while he sought somewhere to buy. In the evenings, he would walk the streets, glancing at open curtains, seeing families gather together. And then darkness would come, and the curtains would close, and he felt alone in the dark. This cannot happen in God's church or family. Because of Jesus, there is a seat and a place for everyone and anyone. We are not to put up barriers. 
during this lockdown year, while our doors have been closed to worship. They have been open in service to those who need food or toiletries, water and medicine. It's not for our church members, although if needed it is. It is open for anyone who wishes to cross our doors where acceptance, love and kindness welcomes them. In the second image, Paul uses a picture of a building where each part, each stone or Christian, is part of the building connected to Christ, who is the cornerstone. If you take out the cornerstone, the arch will collapse, as it is the cornerstone that holds everything together. You think about it. Old churches were built over many years by different people. It may have started Saxon, but had a Norman arch. Or it could be Gothic. But out of all these kinds of architecture, all kinds of people built it. But it was built in unity and used as worship for God and meeting with Jesus. Our own building has had many people from all walks of life and nations, as our flags demonstrate. But we have all come together to worship God and encounter Jesus. That is what church should be like. Its unity comes from Christ, not liturgy, ritual or worship. In closing, the church will only realise this unity when it realises it is not here to promote anything other than Jesus Christ. It is to be a home and dwelling place where the Spirit of Christ can dwell and where all who love Jesus can meet in that Spirit. I rejoice when we all get back together where we can worship God in truth and in love. Amen.